Well, if you have a Bible, Isaiah chapter 53 is where we'll be today. Isaiah chapter 53. This passage is one of the most beautiful and complete depictions of Jesus and his work on the cross in the entire Bible. When I was in middle school, I remember hearing this passage read for the first time. And I got home later that night and I was like, I really liked that. I need to find that. And so I started looking in the New Testament. I started reading the book of Hebrews and I couldn't find it. And so finally I had to ask my dad where it was. And he was like, actually, that's in Isaiah. This is one of the clearest depictions of Jesus and his work on the cross in the Bible. And it was written 700 years before Jesus came to the earth. St. Augustine said that this should not be called a prophecy, but a gospel. And there's part of me, honestly, that is intimidated to even teach on this passage because it is so beautiful. It's almost like, what do we need to say about it? Let's just read it. But in Acts chapter 8, there's a man who's reading it, and a guy asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And so the goal today is just for us to walk through this and explain it. So when I refer to Isaiah 53, I'm talking about Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53. For some reason, whenever the people went back after this was written and put chapters and verses on it, they uh, left off three verses that really belong in this section. So the last three verses of chapter 52, um, we're also including when we say Isaiah 53. In this passage, it breaks nicely into five sections of three verses each. And so what we're going to do is um, today we're going to see five glorious truths about the suffering servant. Five glorious truths about the suffering servant. There will be one truth from each of the sections. Make sense? So, here's the first one. His journey will be from suffering to glory. His journey will be from suffering to glory. These first three verses give us the trajectory of the passage and also of the servant's life. Let's look at it. Verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Verse 14. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. Verse 15. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. This servant's journey is going to end in glory. The destination of his life is going to be glorious in the end. Look at verse 13 again. He says, um, 
that he's going to be successful. That word could be translated, he's going to act wisely. That's what's said about the servant throughout the book of Isaiah, that he's going to do the right thing. He's going to listen to the Lord. He's going to obey the Lord's instructions. So he's going to be successful in that sense. And then it says he's going to be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. And that's the same language that's used of God himself in Isaiah chapter 6 in the, the vision that Isaiah has where he's in the throne room and the Lord is high and lifted up. It's the same language. So the idea is that this servant, someday at the end of his journey, he's going to be raised and exalted. All the peoples are going to marvel at him. He's going to be worshiped by all the nations of the earth. He's going to be raised and exalted. His journey is going to end in glory, but it's going to come through suffering. He's going to suffer so much that it says in verse 14 that he's going to be disfigured. The word disfigured means he's going to be literally ruined. His body is going to be tortured and scarred to the point that it will not look like a human anymore. Verse 14 says that at the end of this, he will not look like a man. That means that the people who knew him before the suffering are going to look at him and go, is that him? And it says in verse 14, not just that he will not look like a man, but he did not resemble a human being which means if you didn't know him before his suffering, you'll look at him and you'll go, is that even a human? His form will be so tortured, scarred, that it'll be disfigured. It'll be destroyed. It'll be unrecognizable. And this suffering is going to silence the kings of the earth. Verse 14 says, just as many were appalled at you, speaking of the nation of Israel, just as many people looked at the nation of Israel and said, are you kidding me? You're the nation that supposedly worships the one true God? Your city's been destroyed. Your city's laying in ruins. Just as people mocked the nation of Israel, so people will mock this servant not because his city has been ruined, but because he has. But there's something about what he's going to experience that's going to silence the kings of the earth so that they'll, they'll be shocked, they'll marvel. What is it that will shock them? What is it that will silence them? It's the severe suffering that's followed by such a glorious accomplishment. What is the accomplishment? We don't find out the whole extent of it until the last section of this chapter, but we get a little taste of it here in verse 15. This suffering servant is going to sprinkle many nations. The word sprinkle comes from the book of Leviticus which describes what a priest would do with the blood of an animal. This servant 
is going to make forgiveness and cleansing of sin possible for many nations. So his end is glory. His path is suffering. His journey will be from suffering to glory. Now, what's interesting is at the end of Jesus' life, in Luke chapter 24, after he's died on the cross and been raised from the dead, he's walking down the road one day with a couple friends, and they don't realize that it's him. And Jesus says to them, are you still, you still don't understand? Isn't it written that the Messiah must suffer and then enter into his glory? And Jesus, by saying that in Luke 24, is saying, I am the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. I am the one whose path has been one of suffering, but my destination is glorious. That's the first truth. His journey will be from suffering to glory. Here's the second thing. He will be despised for knowing suffering instead of status. He will be despised for knowing suffering instead of status. 53 verse 1 starts with a question. Here's what it says. Who has believed what we have heard? Or who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This first verse could be translated like this. Who could have believed that this, meaning the servant, was the arm of the Lord? Who could have believed that? Now, the arm of the Lord is a theme throughout the book of Isaiah. And in 51 verse 9, this is just before this passage, the arm of the Lord was the picture of the Lord himself acting to save the Israelites out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. So it's recounting the Exodus and the arm of the Lord was God himself acting with strength and power to redeem his people. Then in 52 verse 10, just a few verses before this, it says that the arm of the Lord is ready to bring salvation now to the exiles. So the hope of the people is that someday God's going to flex on the nations, that he's going to demonstrate his arm and he's going to rescue and save. The problem is when this servant shows up, he will be the arm of the Lord, but it's like God is rolling up his sleeve and when you look at his arm, it looks like mine, <laughs> not a bodybuilder. When God rolls up his sleeve and reveals his arm that, it, that has come to bring salvation and has come to rescue, it's gonna look like somebody who doesn't go to the gym very often. And so consequently, he's gonna be rejected and despised. Look at verse two. He grew up before him like a young plant 
and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He's not going to be a massive oak. He's going to be a little shoot. And he's going to come out of dry ground, meaning you're not going to be expecting this. You're not expecting for dry ground to produce, you know, this lots of vegetation. So he's going to be unexpected. He's not going to be impressive. He's not going to have any majesty. He's not going to be beautiful. He's going to be utterly unremarkable. And as a result, he's going to be despised. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Isn't that what the world does many times to people without beauty, without some type of majesty, without something really impressive? We say, That's, what can that do for me? And that's who this servant will be. He will know suffering and sickness. He'll know what it's like to battle acne. He'll know what it's like to be called names, to be bullied, to be sick, to be poor, and to be marginalized. When Jesus came into the world, he came to a poor working class family in the middle of nowhere one of the very first things that happened to Jesus when he started his ministry and he came on the scene is somebody walked up to him and said, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's utterly unremarkable. He has no status. Instead, he knows what it's like to suffer. And as a result, he was despised. He was despised for knowing suffering instead of status. In the next three verses, we learn why. Why was the servant a man of suffering? Here's the third thing. He will suffer so we can be saved. He will suffer so we can be saved. Listen to verse four. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. Why was this servant someone who knew suffering? So that he could relate to us. We know what suffering's like. We know what sickness is like. And the servant who has come to save sinners also knows. He knows your way. It gets even, the extent to the suffering gets even greater in verse five. But he was pierced because of our rebellion crushed because of our iniquities. 
punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. Verse six, we all went astray like sheep. We all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This servant is put forward as a substitute for sinners. As sinners, we deserve to pay for our sins. We deserve to be pierced and wounded for what we have done. This servant is put forward as a substitute so that he is pierced, so that he is wounded, so that he is judged. He pays the penalty so that we can go free. That's what the servant is doing. These verses, especially verse six, it gives us the essence of how salvation works. First, the, the essence of sin is on display in, in verse six. It says, we all went astray like sheep, meaning we looked at God and we said, even though you claim to know what's best and you claim to be the wise creator and you claim to have a law that I should submit to, I actually know better than you and we're gonna go on our own path. The essence of sin is we take God's place. We say, you claim to be the wise one. You claim to know what's right. Actually, I know what's right. Actually, I'm wise. Actually, I know what will make me most happy. Actually, I know what will make me most fulfilled. And so you are an idiot and I am gonna go my own way. That's the essence of sin. We take God's place. Now think about how unbelievably arrogant, disrespectful, and despicable it is that puny, pathetic creatures like me and you would look at the God who has created all things and say, we know better than you. Think about how ridiculous that is. In our family, there's a joke that circulates about uh, my sister-in-law when she was four years old. She was looking at her dad, my father-in-law, and she was saying, four-year-olds are smarter than adults. And he was like, that's funny. No, they're not. No, four-year-olds are. I do know better than you. And that's cute when it's a little kid. But how should the infinitely holy and just God who created all things respond to ignorant arrogance like that? Should he just laugh and say, oh, that's so cute and funny the way that humans literally destroy their lives and the lives of others by thinking that they are smarter than me? Should he just laugh at that? <laughs> Man, the humans are so cute. No. 
because he is infinitely holy and just. The right response to that, to that audacity and that evil is anger and action. Anger and action. Isn't it true that that good authority, authority that you can trust, is an authority that when something evil is taking place, you know they're going to step in and deal with this. They're going to protect the innocent. They're going to step in and, and act. It's going to anger them when they see somebody doing evil. And God is a good authority, and he intends to act. Maybe part of your story, when you look back on the wounds in your life, part of your story is that when something was happening to you that was wrong and evil, the authority in your life did not step in with anger and action, but instead they swept it under the rug. Instead, they ignored it. And consequently, what they did is they diminished your value. They said that what has happened to you is actually not that serious. You're overreacting. We do not have a God who diminishes the value of his creatures. Instead, we have a God who is angered by the arrogance. And we have a God who intends to act, to judge sinners. So the question that we should ask is how can a good and holy God ever accept sinners like us? The truth is we're not just the victims, we're also the perpetrators. How can a holy God ever accept us? How can we ever stand before a holy God? While God is a God of justice, he is also a God of mercy and grace. And it's not that sometimes he's just and sometimes he's merciful. It's not that he has to wake up every day and decide, okay, am I gonna be a God of justice today or am I gonna be a God of grace and mercy and love today? There's no competition in his heart over these things. He's infinitely just and he's infinitely merciful at the same time, at all times. That's part of his nature. He always has those attributes. The essence of sin is we take God's place. The essence of salvation is that God takes ours. The only way that sinners like me and you can stand before a holy God is God has chosen to step in for us by sending his son, his servant, Jesus. His servant has come so that he can be pierced, so that you can go free. He can be wounded so that you can be healed. He is rejected so you can be accepted. He is crushed so that you can live. God in his justice demanded payment for sin. 
God in his grace made the payment himself. By sending his son Jesus to go to the cross and die in our place. This was foreshadowed in the Old Testament at the Passover when a lamb was slain for the people. It was foreshadowed in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus when at the day of atonement, the priest would stand before the people and kill a goat in the place of the people. And he would send another goat with the sins of the people symbolically on that goat out of the tent, out of the camp. It was foreshadowed, but it's not fulfilled until Jesus goes to the cross. Listen to Hebrews chapter nine, verse 12. He, that's Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. First Peter 3.18, I quote this one all the time. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus suffered so that we could be saved. So come to him and believe. And even as he suffered, he remained immovable and incorruptible. And that's the fourth thing. Here's number four. He will suffer with silence and without sin. Look at verse seven. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Verse eight, he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. That means he died. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. Verse nine. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Listen to some of the things that happened to Jesus on his last day. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him and to beat him saying, prophesy, the temple servants also took him and slapped him. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. And as he endures all of those things, at no point does he lash out at them. At no point does he begin to hate them in his heart, but instead he endures. He continues to suffer because he loves them and he wants to suffer for them in their place. I can't, sometimes somebody will just say something to me that rubs me wrong and I get offended. Sometimes my team just loses to freaking Arkansas like last night. 
and I get mad and I lose my temper. Jesus is beaten, whipped, mocked, spit on, slapped. And he endures with silence and without sin. Imagine the courage. Imagine the confidence and the resolve. And now the fifth thing. His suffering will win his victory and ours. His suffering will win his victory and ours. Remember his journey? It's a journey from suffering to glory. And not only is his death prophesied in this passage, but also his glorious resurrection. Listen to verses 10 through 12. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Verse 11, after his, ang- his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Verse 12, Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Jesus was not a victim, he was a volunteer. He willingly went to the cross in order to win the victory. His and ours. His victory. What is it? Tells us in verse 10. His victory is he accomplished the Lord's pleasure. In other words, he made God happy. He pleased his father. But again, he's not a victim. It's not like his dad was like, buddy, I'd really love you to go down there and suffer. I'm going to stay up here. No, Jesus was in on the plan. He wanted to do it for his dad. His dad and him and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, they had a plan in mind. We want to redeem all the earth. We want many nations to be sprinkled and forgiven and cleansed. And so Jesus said, sign me up. I'll go. And he went. And because he went, he is rewarded. He's rewarded by this eternal joy that he gets for pleasing his father. He bows to no one's will but but his father's. And he also is raised from the dead. He's not cut off forever, but he's raised in power and in glory from the dead. He's resurrected. And he receives as a reward all of those who will come and trust in him so that we can be called his people We're his family. He's literally our brother. That's his reward. But he doesn't just do this for himself. He does it for us. He wins our victory. And what is our victory? It says in verse 11, 
my righteous servant will justify many. Our victory is justification. Justification means that we are officially declared as good, as right, as being in the right. We are officially able to stand in the presence of a holy God because of what the servant has done. That's our victory. And that means regardless of the defeats that you might experience on this earth, there is a victory that will be yours. This is why in the next chapter, you should keep reading this. It says, rejoice, childless one. Even though in this life you've gone through some hardship, rejoice. Why? Because there is a victory that's not of this world. He wins his victory and ours at the cross. Our sin is transferred to Jesus and his righteousness is transferred to us so that we can stand before God forgiven. Jesus was raised and we will one, one day also be raised and we can rejoice with him. His suffering wins his victory and ours. Today, we get to celebrate this truth that we've studied by taking the Lord's Supper together. When you came in, hopefully you got one of these little pouch things. If you didn't, there's some at the back table. You can go grab one. But this is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. It's a picture of this message that we've just studied. So we're gonna take this together, but if you'll go ahead and lift the, the little packaging there so that you'll be ready when we get to that point. Like I said, this is a picture that Jesus has given us to help us remember what he's done for us and also to, to proclaim to the world what he's done. The little piece of bread is a picture of Jesus' body that was broken for us. In the same way that you have to eat food in order for your body to live, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves that it's only by coming to Jesus, receiving him, that our souls can live. And the cup is a picture of Jesus's blood. When you see the cup, it should remind you that, that your blood should be shed. But instead, the suffering servant has been put forward and he shed his blood so that you can go free. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are confessing that I'm a sinner and I depend on Jesus to be my savior. If you're here today and you're not at a point where you can say that, I would just ask you to not compromise your beliefs and pretend, but just be true to yourself and not participate. Because as we participate, we're saying, I know that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to be my savior. That's what this meal represents. 
So we'll take this in just a second. Would you take just a few moments, bow your head as just a, a picture of your humility before a holy God. And would you confess your sins to him? The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. In the same way, he also took the cup, after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is a day when Jesus will return to the earth to make all things right, to judge the living and the dead. On that day, those who belong to Jesus will be raised with him in power. We will reign with him over all things. His future will be our future and we'll rejoice. And that is only possible because of his death and his resurrection. If you don't believe that today, would you consider it? Would you think about it as you leave here? If you do, then would you sing with hope that the God who has forgiven you will also someday raise you from the dead? Let's stand and let's sing.